Would you pray with me? Journey with us, O holy God, as we make our way to the cross. Sharpen our focus that our attention may center more on you than ourselves. Lead us through the shadows of darkness and prepare our hearts that we might be a people of prayer, ready to perceive and respond to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, we looked at the last verses of Luke chapter 13. This week, we go to the beginning of that chapter. And Jesus is speaking at this point to a large crowd, as he's been doing, recorded for the last few chapters. According to Luke, thousands of people are swarming around him, all eager to ask him questions, to hear his answers, to better understand what this Jesus is teaching. We know from the last verses of the chapter that there are some Pharisees present in the crowd, lingering about, ever watchful, ever listening. Jesus' disciples are present, interrupting him from time to time, asking him to explain his parables and teachings. But most in the crowd are regular folk, intrigued by this new rabbi, this new teacher, and they've got questions for him. One group has a very particular question. They have heard tell of a horrific event. Pontius Pilate murdering a group of Galileans while they were in the act of offering sacrifices. An attack not only on the lives of those worshipers, but also an attack on the sacred rights of those Jews, for whom the mixing of blood with sacrifices was a grave defilement. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what the people asked Jesus about this event, but we can figure it out based on Jesus' response. 
Because it was common belief among the Jews of this day that bad things happened to a person as a result or a consequence of their sin. Think of the story of Jesus healing the blind man. The people asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? If something tragic befell you, you must have somehow deserved it. And while that strikes us as rather harsh, I think we can resonate with the impulse behind it. We want to make sense of suffering. We want to be able to explain why bad things happen so that we can then avoid bad things in the future. If this happened to this person because they did X, Y, or Z, then if I just avoid doing X, Y, or Z, bad things won't happen to me. Well, Jesus discredits this belief immediately. Do you think that those people were worse than all the other Jews in all of Galilee that this horrible thing happened to them? And then he goes a step further and he brings up another tragedy. A tower by the pool of Siloam that fell on and killed 18 people. And he asks the crowd again if they really think that those 18 people were so much more sinful than everyone else in all of Jerusalem that they deserved such a fate. Jesus expands the narrative. He offers both an act of human evil and an act of what we might call natural disaster and says that neither was a punishment, a consequence of the sin of those who had perished. He doesn't explain anything more about these events. He isn't interested, it seems, in explaining away suffering. But he is interested in the question from another angle. The people in the crowd want this story to be about those who had died. Jesus turns the tale back on them and says that they, in fact, are the ones who need to examine their hearts and minds. For by asking the question about those people, these people are really asking, so we're better than they are, right? We've got it figured out. And behind that question is the desire for calculation. What can I get away with without calamity striking me? Just where is the line and how much of a toe can I put across that line without a tower falling on me? Well, Jesus isn't going to play that game. The response to these tragedies, he says, shouldn't be gloating or self-righteousness or adding a diagram to some religious playbook. There is just one response he gives to such a situation. Tragedy happens without warning and without cause, and you are all sinners in need of mercy. So make sure you are prepared to meet the Lord at all times with your toes squarely planted on the right side of the line. In fact, says Jesus, your toes shouldn't even be pointed towards that line in the first place. Repent, he tells the people. And repent, in the Greek metanoian, means to change one's mind. 
True repentance isn't just a one-off thing, apologizing for doing something wrong, all the while already thinking about how we might be able to get away with doing that thing later on. Repentance means turning right away from something, from both the activity and from the desire to see how much we could get away with, and focusing our minds instead on living rightly before God. It involves a a total reorientation, changing our minds about what the best way to live is and orienting ourselves to chase after that life, the life we are called to by the life giver. Repentance requires that we take our eyes off of those around us as we try to compare and measure our own lives and sins against another person's in order to justify our behavior. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. They've got a whole leg over the line. And instead, to look only at Jesus, the righteous Son of God, who shows us how we truly are to live. Repentance means that we give up trying to control our lives and live, says the preacher Fred Craddock, in penitence and trust before God. A penitent trust that is not to be linked to life's sorrows or life's joys. We don't get to edge closer to the line when life is good and tempt fate. Nor should we only turn away from the line when things are bad. Come rain or shine, we are to turn away from sinful behavior again and again and again and focus our minds, our eyes, our hearts on God and his will for our lives. In the short story Revelation by Flannery O'Connor, Mrs. Ruby Turpin needs a reminder to keep her eyes fixed squarely on Jesus. Mrs. Turpin is a self-righteous, narrow-minded busybody of an old woman. And as she sits in a doctor's office one day, she passes judgment out loud on everyone else in the waiting room. As she chats to the woman sitting next to her, she points out one flaw after another of the motley crew assembled in the room until finally, unable to bear it anymore, Mary Grace, a girl who Mrs. Turpin had already described to her neighbor as being fat, ugly, and pimply, throws her elementary psychology textbook at her face and yells at her, go back to hell where you belong, you old warthog. Mrs. Turpin is shaken by this accusation. Surely she, who gives thanks every day to have not been born into one of the many groups of people she despises, and to have been given such a good disposition, surely she cannot be a warthog, and certainly is not from hell. But then one evening, Mrs. Turpin receives a vision, a revelation. She sees a line of people marching up to heaven. And at the front of that line, beautiful and bright shining, are whole companies of all the trashy folks she had scorned and derided and judged before. And at the very back of the line, 
to her great horror, she sees herself and her friends chastened and stooped low. Turns out that Mrs. Turpin might be a little warty after all. And it took a girl with grace in her name to help Mrs. Turpin see this. There's grace in our story this morning too. Grace in this call to repentance. Because the thing about changing one's mind is that God changes his mind too. Jesus follows his call to repentance with this parable of a fig tree. In Matthew and Mark's version of this story, Jesus causes the fig tree to wither and die, but not so in Luke's telling. The story goes that a man has a fig tree in his vineyard, and fig trees are supposed to reach maturity in three years. So if a tree doesn't bear any fruit in this time, as is the case with this fig tree, it likely won't bear any fruit down the road. It's a lost cause. And so the man wants to cut it down so it is no longer taking up space and nutrients from all the other trees that might bear fruit. But his gardener pleads with the man for just a bit more time, just one more year. I will give it special attention, he says. I will fertilize it and make sure that it gets proper water. And if it doesn't bear fruit after that, fine, you can cut it down. But just give me a little more time. The fig tree throughout scripture is used to represent the people of Israel. And throughout scripture, prophets plead on Israel's behalf. They plead for God to show mercy, for God to give Israel just a bit more time to turn away from her wicked ways and repent. And God does. In Hosea chapter 11, God says, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. We don't expect that last verse, do we? We expect it to read, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, therefore I will come in wrath. But that's not what God says. Rather, says Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, the Bible says that when God looks at his people's sinfulness, his transcendent holiness, his godness, his very divinity, that about God which makes him not us, that is what makes him unable to come down on his people in wrath. God is a God of justice, despising what is evil and broken and unholy. 
But at his very core, God is a God of mercy. And he so desires to live in love with us, his beautiful creation, that he seeks every way to reach out to us in that love. Including sending his own son to do what the prophets had done before him. To plead on our behalf. To ask for a little more time. To ask for forgiveness. The gardener asks the man to leave the tree alone for a year. And the Greek for leave alone is aphis, which is exactly the same word in exactly that form that we read a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 11 when Jesus tells the people how they are to pray. Aphis our sins as we aphis those who sin against us. Forgive us. Forgive the tree. Give the tree some grace. Give the tree a chance. A chance to bear fruit. A chance to turn away from the line and walk in the other direction towards God and a God-filled life. A chance to see that it's not just those around us who are sinful that we're a little bit warty too. A chance to repent. So is Luke 13 verses 1 through 9 a pretty dire and urgent warning? Absolutely. And is there grace and good news in Luke 13? Absolutely. This is the paradox of our faith. Fred Craddock says, God is the judge of our behavior, and yet God offers to all of us opportunity for repentance. Attending to one's relation to God is a matter of most urgent business now, and yet God is patient with the fig tree that may yet bear fruit. Luke does not destroy severity by infusing grace, nor does he destroy grace by infusing severity. God's mercy is still in serious conversation with God's judgment. God's grace is abundant, and the call to repentance is immediate. Jesus is pleading for us. The Spirit nourishes us and gives us all that we need to be fruitful. And so the question for us in this season of Lent and in every season of our lives is, Will we be receptive soil? Will we keep stepping a toe over the line, trying to see what we can get away with, trying to live on our own terms, trusting in our own righteousness and rightness? Or will we turn towards Jesus, opening our hearts to what God desires for us, that our lives might bear fruit. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. This isn't just spring cleaning of the soul. It's a constant invitation for the Spirit to convict us, change us, renew us. And the good news is that the Spirit does convict. It gives us the strength to admit our faults. 
and the courage to turn away from them and the patience to see how God is and will shape our lives, causing us to bear fruit as we continue to turn towards him. So keep your eyes on Jesus and turn to him. He is ever pleading for you. Would you pray with me? And so, gracious God, lead us back to you. Help us turn from that which tempts us, our pride, our self-righteousness, our greed, our envy, our desire to get ahead, and to turn to you, focusing our hearts and our minds on you and you alone. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to live with us, teach us, and die for us, to save us from our sins. And thank you that Jesus now stands before you, interceding on our behalf, pleading for us. Help us respond to his invitation to follow where he leads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.